We are in Revelation chapter 3. If you will turn with me to Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, and then also put a finger in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. On Wednesday nights, we're doing an in-depth study from our weekend text. So this weekend, we uh, studied verse 7 to verse 22, and tonight we're going to be looking in-depth at verse 7 and 8, looking at little strength, how the Church of Philadelphia had a little strength. Can you relate? Is that how you feel this evening, where you're like, man, I just don't have it. I don't have the strength. But good news, the Lord has the strength. He does his greatest work in our weakness. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are the God who meets us in our weakness. The gospel is all about your provision for our brokenness, your answer for our sin. Father, I pray for real encouragement tonight. Where there's uh, discouragement, where we're overwhelmed, we look to you, we put our eyes upon you. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. So we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Weakness causes us to rely upon God's strength. I don't think that anyone enjoys weakness. Try weakness on for size. It's not comfortable. It's hard. It's difficult. It's confusing. But in our weakness, that's where God's strength is made perfect. We're called in weakness. We're told in 1 Corinthians that God calls the weak and the foolish to confound the wise. So, so he's looking for those that don't have strength, for those that don't have the experience. To where people can't look at and give them the glory, they go, it's got to be God, because I know them, and they're weak, they're, they're foolish. He calls us in our weakness. The Apostle Paul understood this to the point where when God allowed a thorn in his flesh, he prayed that God would take it away, and God said no. My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Is Paul gloried in the infirmity. He gloried in the weakness because he knew in that weakness that God's strength could be made perfect. Think about in your own life those seasons where you felt strong. Were you really strong? No, but you, you felt strong. You, you perceived yourself to be strong. You perceived yourself to have all of the answers. Were you depending upon God? But when there's difficulty, when there's weakness, when we don't have the answers, we cry out to the Lord, Lord, I need you. God, I'm looking to you. The attribute that's given to the church of Philippi is there of little strength. Let's read verse 7 and 8. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength and have kept my word and have not denied my name. God says, I've opened a door for you that no one can shut. We know that the church of Philippi is going through tremendous persecution from the Jews, from the synagogue. But yet God says, I'm bigger than that persecution. I'm, I'm bigger than that opposition. I've set before you an open door. 
and no one can close it. Quoting Isaiah 22, verse 22. And for us to be able to discern, God, when are you opening a door? And God, when are you closing a door? And when we sense that the Lord is, is opening up a door, opening up a, an opportunity, a, a calling, many times we're aware of our weaknesses. We're aware of our sin. We're aware of our shortcomings, and it intimidates us, and we go, I, I can't step through this open door. Unlike the church of Laodicea, the church of Laodicea ha- had a lot of money. They had a lot of resources. From man's perspective, maybe that's the church that, that God would use. But they were far from the Lord. But the church of Philippi was close to the Lord and relying upon the Lord in their little strength. We might think of this as a negative, but God sees this as a positive. You've got a little bit of strength. And because of that, I've opened up a door for you. They were faithful to the word. They've kept the word. They haven't denied the name of the Lord. If I were to try to summarize this season of my life, I would say I have a little strength. I have a little strength in family, as a husband, as a dad. I have a little strength as as a pastor. I'm more aware of my inadequacies than ever before. I'm more aware of of weakness in in my life, and and I don't like that. I like it when I have the answers. I like it when I feel confident. If you were to ask me when I was in my early 30s, I'd have a lot of advice on what pastors should do. Now that I've been doing this for a little while, I have very little advice of what pastors should do. You know, when my kids were little, I was a a really good dad. I'd have a lot of advice for you on what dads should do. I could probably preach a pretty fiery sermon on what it meant to, to be a dad. Now that I've had kids for a lot of years, I realize how much I need God's grace as a dad. I realize I've very little answers when it comes to being a dad. I need God's intervention. What about you in your life? Is God exposing and revealing and, and possibly even weakening us? Getting us to a place where we're not confident in our own physical strength, our own abilities and our answers to cause us to be able to look to him. The children of Israel are in a position where they literally have a little bit of strength, and God brings about a great victory. So I want to spend time there tonight in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. If you'll turn with me there to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. If you're like, where in the world is Chronicles? I'm trying to find it too. It's after Kings, First and Second Kings. Like that helps a lot. So it's in the Old Testament, it's before Nehemiah, after Kings, Bible app, or grab your neighbor's Bible. If your neighbor has found Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 1, it focuses on Judah. Israel is split and divided as a kingdom at this time. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Judah consists of two tribes, just two tribes. Judah and Benjamin. It happened after this that the people of Moab with the people of Ammon 
and others with them besides the Ammonites came to battle against Jehoshaphat. Whenever we see in our Bibles after this, we need to pause and go, well, after what? What just happened? If you look at chapter 19, Jehoshaphat has come in and brought spiritual reform. He's challenged the judges to honor the Lord. He's challenged the priests to honor the Lord. In essence, he set the tone and said, we're going to follow God. We're going to do justly. We're going to love him and put him first in our actions, which wasn't always the case of the kings of Judah. There was kings of Judah that were wicked and led the children of Israel into idolatry, but Judah is now having a leader who's setting a different spiritual tone. But notice, as soon as Jehoshaphat does this, the enemies come to attack. And not just one enemy, but we've got Ammon, we've got the Ammonites that are coming, and those and the people of Moab. So you've got three people groups that are coming against just two tribes of Israel. You've probably noticed in your relationship with God, when you put a stake in the ground and you decide, man, I'm going to follow the Lord. As for me and my house, we're going to follow the Lord. I'm going to commit myself to following Christ. Then the attack comes. And that's exactly what took place for the children of Israel. In verse 2, Then some came and told Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, from Syria, which are in Hazaron Tamar, which is in Engedi. Syria is north of Judah. Beyond the sea is a reference to the, the Sea of Galilee. If you look at a map of Israel, you locate Syria, you see that they're, they're coming from the north. And they've come past Jerusalem, south of Jerusalem to Engedi to try to, to sneak up on Jerusalem. As the crow flies, Engedi from Jerusalem is about 27 miles. It's not far at all. Just off of the Dead Sea. Some of you might remember Engedi from David hanging out in Engedi, hiding from Saul when Saul was trying uh, to kill him. So here comes news to Jehoshaphat. Right after this great declaration that they're going to follow God, that this great multitude, not just a small multitude, but a great multitude is coming, and Jehoshaphat feared. I want you to meditate on that for just a moment. This king who loves God, this king who is committed to serving God, he's afraid. As much as we don't like it, sometimes we get afraid, don't we? There's news that we get that causes us to fear. The multitude's coming against us. We're going to lose the job. There's a crisis in our health. There's, there's a broken relationship. Something that overwhelms us where we're like, I just don't have the strength to deal with this. I don't have the answers to do with, deal with this. And so fear comes upon us, just like Jehoshaphat, and, and he's afraid. But notice what he did in his fear. And set himself to seek the Lord and proclaim a fast throughout all of Judah. If you're taking notes tonight, write this down, is pray and seek the Lord. Pray and seek the Lord. As we understand that we have a little strength and God has set an open door for us, what does that look like practically to move forward in that open door? Well, it's to pray and seek the Lord. What do we do when there's a great multitude that's revealed? Man, I have no strength. I have little strength. Pray and seek the Lord. Jehoshaphat 
could have gone into solve it mode. He could have gone into fix it mode. He could have gotten the military and said, all right, let's see how many AK-47s we have and 50 calibers and how many arrows and how many spears and what kind of armor. But instead, he decides to seek the Lord. He decides to pray. He decides to proclaim a fast throughout all of Judah. He takes his desperation and he points it to the Lord and he pours it out to the Lord. So Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord and from all of the cities of Jerusalem, they came to seek the Lord. They asked God for help. This seems like a no-brainer. This seems like common sense to, to ask God for help. But have we asked God for help in the things that we're going through? In this multitude that's coming against us, where we don't have answers? Are you overwhelmed and confused with all that's happening in our country nationally? Things that are happening on a local government level? more personal issues that we're facing. Have we asked God for help? He's ready to give help. He's a very present help in time of trouble. But God oftentimes doesn't give his help until we ask for it. So right now, in the midst of this service, take a minute, ask God for help. Lord, this is what's on my mind. This is what's burdening me. This is what is causing me to fear. Lord, I I need your help. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and of Jerusalem in the house of the Lord and before the new court. And Jehoshaphat's just going to pray. He's going to cry out to God. And he said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? Beginning in his prayer, he remembers who God is. I'd be quick if I was Jehoshaphat to say, man, this huge multitude, these three nations are are coming against us. God, we really need your help. But he wisely pauses and says, Lord, you rule and reign over all. No one can withstand you. Pause and, and remember the character and the nature of God. Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel? And gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever. Isn't it cool that Abraham is God's friend forever? Here's a little hint of eternal life in the pages of the Old Testament. How can Abraham be a friend of God forever? Because he has the eternal life. Remember past victories. Remember times in the past where you felt overwhelmed. Where you felt like there was no way out. Where there was a multitude that was coming against you. How did God show himself faithful? That's what Jehoshaphat remembers. Remembers the time of Joshua when God brought them into the promised land and defeated their enemies. And they dwell in it and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name. The sanctuary is the temple saying, if disaster comes upon you, sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this temple and in your presence for your name is in this temple and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now here are the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned from them and did not destroy them. Here they are rewarding us by coming 
to throw us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O Lord God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Remembering God's promise, when the temple was dedicated, God spoke and said, when you're in a difficult time, Israel, come to the temple and pray, and I'm going to hear your prayer. So Jehoshaphat's remembering the word of God. As we're exposed to our little strength, remember the promises of God. What has God promised? What has he declared? What, what has he shared? These three nations that are coming against them are nations that dwell in the wilderness. They traveled through the wilderness, and God says, nope, don't destroy them. They're not part of your inheritance. So Israel obeyed that. And Jehoshaphat's saying, now look at how they're rewarding us for the grace that we have showed them. Are you a Bible underliner? I like underlining in my Bible. For some reason, it just kind of cements it into my heart. Man, verse 12 is one to underline. Verse 12 is our anthem in little strength. It's, it's our motto. For we have no power against this great multitude. If you're taking notes, write this down, number two. In our little strength, admit weakness. Admit weakness while looking to the Lord. Jehoshaphat says we have no chance. We have no chance against this multitude. We have no power and we don't know what to do. God honors humility. He responds to our humility. Jehoshaphat's showing humility here. When we're walking in strength, our own strength, greatness of strength, pride, we can go before the Lord and say, well, God, I've got this. I got this all under, all under control. That's pride. But humility realizes, I don't have this. Lord, I can't do marriage apart from you. I, I can't do parenting apart from you. I can't do my job apart from you. I need you. I have no power. I have no answers. I have, I have no wisdom. And to admit that before the Lord, but while we're admitting that, put your perspective on the Lord. God, I'm going to look to you. My eyes are upon you. I'm looking to you for help. We can strategize. We can plan. We can read books. But if we're not looking to the Lord, man, we're lost. We're absolutely lost. There's no way that we can overcome our own sin, that we can serve the Lord, any of those type of things. To look to the Lord means to depend upon the Lord, to cry out to Him in prayer, to, to rely upon the Word. Instead of looking at the enemy, and instead of looking at the problem, instead of looking at the opposition, saying, oh, I'm looking to the Lord. And this is difficult to do when we're overwhelmed and when we're fearful and there's a great multitude that is coming against us. It's easy for us to look at the problem and look at the difficulty and analyze that. And this evening to lift our eyes off of the problem and look to the Lord. God, I don't know what to do. I don't have the answer, but my eyes are on you. Now all of Judah with their little ones, their wives, and their children, stood before the Lord. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaniah, the son of Jeel, the son of Mattaniah, a Levite. 
of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. So one of the Levites has the Spirit of God fall upon him, and he said, listen, all of you Judah and your inhabitants of Jerusalem, and you, King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Number three, the battle belongs to the Lord. In our little strength, the battle belongs to the Lord. Notice the way that God phrases this. The battle is not yours. That's another underlined verse right there. This problem, this difficulty, this crisis, this confusion, it's not my battle. What this means is I'm not going to win it. It's not going to be my effort. It's not going to be my clever ideas. It's not going to be what I bring to the table. It's not yours. And we oftentimes think that the battle's ours, and in our pride, we think it rests on our shoulders. It all depends upon me and what I do and, and what I don't do. But no, it's not yours. It's, it's the Lord's. The battle belongs to the Lord. God's the one that's going to bring this victory. For the church of Philippi, the battle belongs to the Lord. God's the one who's going to open the door. God's going to be the one who provides the power and the strength to, to walk through that door. So rest tonight. What a comfort this would have been. Jehoshaphat is singled out in this message. Jehoshaphat needed to hear it. Man, the battle is the Lord's. You haven't challenged with one of your kids? The battle is the Lord's. Is there difficulty in your marriage? The battle is the Lord's. Are you single and wrestling to find contentment and direction in the midst of that? The battle's the Lord's. You're wrestling in your job and all of the things that are coming to play with your job. The battle's the Lord's. This war, this spiritual war that we're, we're in, the, the battle's the Lord's. It doesn't belong to us. It belongs to the Lord. Tomorrow, go down against them. They will surely come up by the ascent of Ziz. And you will find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. God says, I want you to go fight them. The battle's not yours. It belongs to me. But I want you to not be in the position of retreating. I actually want you to go out and face them. And many times this is God's direction to us with the difficulty that we're going through. We got to face it. We can't run away from it. The battle belongs to, to the Lord. He's with us. And we've got to move forward, right, right into it. You will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourself, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them, for the Lord is with you. Number four in our little strength is stand still and see his salvation. God says, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. You got to go face the enemy. You got to go face the battle, but you're not going to fight. The victory is going to come from me. And sometimes this is the most difficult thing to do when God says, be still and know that I'm God. Be still and know that I've got it. Trust me. Face it in trust. Face it in belief. Face it with being in my hands. And we say, Lord, I need something to do. 
it's kind of hardwired in us, right? If you go to help somebody out, it's some project they've got at their house or their garage, and they say, hey, you know, I got it. Why don't you just watch? I'd love your company, but I, I've got this. You just go ahead and watch. That's the hardest thing to do in the world. Like, throw me a hammer. Throw me a wrench. I know, I know I'm not very good with it, but put me in, coach, right? And God says, I, I got this. I want the glory for this. So you stand still and see the, the salvation of the Lord. If we look back on our lives, the greatest work that God has done hasn't come from our hand. It hasn't come from our prayer life or our giving or our wisdom. It's when we get out of the way and we let God do his thing. We go, wow, that was the Lord. Lord, you, you did that work in my child's life. Lord, you did that work in, in my marriage. Lord, you blessed my, my job. Lord, you were gracious in, in this situation. You, you saw us through. What God encourages them not to do is to be fearful or to be dismayed. Fear can really grow. Fear is contagious. Discouragement is contagious. Don't be dismayed. The Lord's with you. Oftentimes, God's answer to fear and discouragement is his very presence. Your Father's with you. Your Heavenly Father's with you. He's got it. Jesus will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. I love Jehoshaphat's response. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem bowed before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. He simply responds in worship and in faith. All right, I'm going to have to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. It's not in my hands. I have little strength. But what I can do is I can worship. The word worship means to turn toward and to kiss. It's this idea of bowing down. It's realizing, God, I'm putting you in your, your proper place. I'm choosing to, to worship, and I'm choosing to trust. So there's worship that's expressed in verse 18. When we get down to verse 20, there's, there's faith that is expressed. Then the Levites of the children of the Kohathites and the children of the Korathites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with voices loud and high. So they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. Tekoa is south of Jerusalem, so they're heading towards the enemy, which is in Engedi, just like God had, had said. And they went out. Jehoshaphat stood instead. So if you hear the king, their, their knees are probably starting to wobble a little bit, like we're facing the enemy, we're facing this great multitude. Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. And when he'd consulted with the people and appointed those who, those who should sing to the Lord and who should praise the beauty of holiness, as they went out before the army and were saying, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. This exhortation to believe, to believe. To what degree does God want us to trust him? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not 
on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. God doesn't say, well, you know, trust me 80%. Trust me 85%. He wants to trust him with all of our hearts. We think of Elizabeth and her husband, Zachariah. They're barren, weren't able to have kids up there in years. Zachariah's a priest. He's going to serve in the temple. The angel of the Lord comes to him and says, you're going to be a dad. And scripture tells us that he didn't believe it. So God took his ability to speak. He became mute until his son, John the Baptist, was born. God wants us to believe him, believe his word, believe his promises, believe his character, and believe his nature. Has God not shown himself to be trustworthy? And this is where we have the crucible of faith. This is where the rubber meets the road is when there's a multitude coming against us and we don't have answers and we don't have strength saying, okay, Lord, I trust you. I'm choosing to trust you. I'm choosing to believe in you and I'm choosing to respond in worship. It's interesting how Jehoshaphat divides this out. He says, all right, this group here, I want you to sing. I wonder if they were the ones that could sing well. I don't know. Doesn't matter. He just says, this group, I want you to sing. But the other group, he wanted to give praise, that you should praise the beauty of his holiness. And so some went before the army, and they were saying, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. Praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. Praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. Praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever as they're marching towards the enemy. And it was those that were declaring praise, and this is happening while there's people singing to the Lord. So for us to take this position in our little strength when the multitude's coming against us, to sing to the Lord, to sing of his goodness, to put on that worship playlist, to get those two or three songs down, and I'm gonna sing to the Lord, but then also to say out loud, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. The word mercy is his unfailing, unending love. God, thank you that your love doesn't fail. Thank you that you're merciful and gracious. Even in the midst of this situation and the midst of this difficulty, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. And we declare it, and we say it, and we declare it, and we say it because it puts our focus on who God is. We're declaring his praise with our words. Thank you that you're my father. Thank you that you're faithful. Thank you that you're holy. Thank you that you're true. Thank you that you're with me. We're declaring his praise. And we're singing to him. We're worshiping. We're, we're bowing down before him. I think this would be a difficult time to worship, don't you? I mean, when it really comes down to it, you got three nations coming against two tribes. You're grossly outnumbered. God says, I've got this. Relax. You Don't even pick up a hammer. I'm going to fight for you. All right, Lord. What's there left for me to do? You worship. You trust me. You declare my praise. You trust me. 
verse 22, Now when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambush against the people of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, and they were defeated. I wish we had more details. What did it exactly look like for God to set ambush? But God goes on the offensive. He does what we cannot do. And he defeats these three nations. And he turns these nations against themselves. For the people of Ammon and Moab stood up before the inhabitants of Mount Seir to utterly kill and destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. They, they turn on each other and start destroying each other. So here, Judah feels like they're going to face the enemy. They think they're headed into a battle. But instead of coming into a battle, they come into a victory. Verse 24. So when the people came to a place overlooking the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude, and there were there dead bodies fallen on the earth. No one had escaped. All of the soldiers are killed. No one escapes. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take away their spoil, they found among them an abundance of valuables on the dead bodies and precious jewelry which they stripped off for themselves more than they could carry away. And they, were, and they were three days gathering the spoil because there was so much. Who wears fine jewelry to a battle? <laughs> but it must have been superstitious. Like, oh, I need this piece of jewelry to be able to win this victory. There was so much spoil, they couldn't carry it, and it took them three days to get all of the valuables and bring it back to Jerusalem. And this is what was so astounding to me in studying this and reading this, is what was an overwhelming situation and was the valley of war and the valley of defeat and the valley of confusion and being overwhelmed ended up becoming the valley of blessing. Read with me in verse 26. Then on the fourth day, as they assembled in the valley of Barakah, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, the name of that place was called the Valley of Barakah until this day. And Barakah literally means blessing. They named this valley the Valley of Blessing, which they thought was going to be the Valley of Defeat. Only God can do that. What is overwhelming us, what's discouraging us, what's bringing pain in our lives and, and confusion bringing us to our point of, of little strength, God in his goodness can take that and redeem it and turn it into the valley of blessing. Now, does this mean everything always turns out our way? No. Does this mean there's no suffering? No. But it means that God's even able to use the suffering for his glory. The life of Joseph. Here he was, betrayed by his brothers, sold as a slave, accused of rape, thrown into prison, but God was working. God was with him. God didn't forsake him. He used all of that, used it for good, allowed Joseph to be second in command of Pharaoh to save his whole family, to save Egypt. At the end of Joseph's life, he says, what well, you meant for evil, speaking to his brothers, there was no doubt about it. You meant it for evil. God turned it to good. He took the valley of suffering and he turned it into the valley of blessing. Only God can do that. Verse 27, Then they returned, every man of Judah and Jerusalem, 
with Jehoshaphat in front of them to go back to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. They go back rejoicing. God had given them victory over their enemies. It seems to me that 2 Chronicles chapter 20 also illustrates the gospel, the goodness of Jesus Christ. What, what overwhelms us more than anything else? It's our sin. What defeats us more than anything else? Our sin. What separates us from God? Our sin. What do we have no answer for? Our sin. And what is God's message to us? Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. You're not going to earn or deserve your salvation. Step back and let me do the work. And Jesus steps into the valley of our suffering, the valley of our sin, and he dies upon the cross. He rises again to all those who believe, who turn from sin, repent and believe, and declare Jesus as Lord. What's the result? We're saved. And there's victory. What accursed us turns into our victory, forgiveness of sin and power over sin. Only, only God can do that. If he can handle our greatest problem, which is sin, he can also handle every other problem that we're going through in our lives. So they came to Jerusalem with the stringed instruments and harps and trumpets to the house of the Lord. When you read trumpets in the Old Testament, I hope you don't think of brass trumpets. These are shofars, they're ram's horns. That was the, the trumpets, and they're very loud. If I could figure out how to blow one, I would blow one for you. I've, I've tried, and I can't get them to even make a joyful noise. But I, I've heard others that can really get them to rock. And the fear of God was on the kingdoms of those countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. Then the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest all around. God uses this victory to silence all the rest of their enemies. Their enemies are like, I'm not going to go attack Judah because God's with them. So here's the enemy trying to attack as they make this bold stand to, to serve the Lord. But God gives the victory and also uses this to silence the rest of their, their enemies. What if... Jehoshaphat would have taken a different posture with this great multitude that was coming against him. What if he didn't approach this in weakness and he approached this in, God, we got this. And he looked at his resources and he said, well, we have the temple. We can strip the gold out of the temple and we can offer it to our enemies and maybe they won't attack if we give them the gold. Some of the other kings of Judah did that. What if he said, oh, let's make an alliance with another king that's wicked, that doesn't serve the Lord? Well, some of the other kings of, of Judah did that. Well, what if he comes up with a really good military plan that makes good human sense? The outcome would have been completely different. But because he realized his weakness, because he realized his little strength, and he humbled himself before the Lord, then God came in, and brought about this great victory. With weakness in our lives, we can either resent it or we can embrace it. 
Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he cries out to the Father and he says, take this cup from me, speaking of the cross. He wanted to be spared from the cross. Not just the physical suffering of the cross, but the spiritual agony of becoming sin and being punished from our sin, being separated from the Father. He says, take this cup of suffering from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. What is it in your life that's causing weakness? By all means, go to the Lord and ask him to take it. Lord, if you want to deliver me from this, please do. If you want to get me out of this financial trouble, please do. Lord, if you want to heal me, please do. Lord, if you want to bring relational reconciliation, please do. And sometimes he will. But if he chooses not to, then to be able to say like Christ, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. I'm going to embrace the weakness. I'm going to embrace the little bit of strength because it's causing me to depend upon you. I acknowledge my weakness. I humble myself before you. God, I don't have power. I don't know what to do, but I'm putting my eyes upon you. The practical application is I'm going to worship. That's what I'm going to make my day about every day. Lord, I'm going to worship you. I'm going to turn towards you. I'm going to bow down. I'm going to love on you. I'm going to give you my adoration. I'm going to sing to you. You're going to find me on my knees. And I'm going to praise you. Praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. Praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. I'm going to focus on his attributes and I'm going to rejoice in him and leave the battle in, in his hands. And I hope, by God's grace, that we all, at some point in our lives, have a testimony of a valley of blessing. We go, God did this. God did it. It wasn't me. It wasn't my hard work. It wasn't my righteousness. In fact, God did all that in spite of me. And he used what was overwhelming me to bring about a great victory. And not necessarily a life of comfort or ease or financial stability, but one of where God receives the glory, where God is, is glorified and his name is praised. So may we be like the Church of Philadelphia and embrace a little bit of strength. Take our five loaves and two fish and put it in Christ's hands. That's all I got. God, I got crumbs today. <laughs> but I'm putting these crumbs in your hands. I'm going to trust you. A great place for us to come tonight is communion. The man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, who knows suffering, our Savior, Jesus, our King, and draw near to him to remember his broken body, to remember his shed blood, to celebrate the gospel. Lord, you saved me. You did for me what I could never do for myself. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father, we don't like being weak. We don't like not having the answers. But it's exactly where you want us to be. And there's comfort knowing that 
You know. You have the answers. You're upon the throne. And we seek you. And those things that are overwhelming us and the things that we can't handle in our families and our own struggles with sin and what's happening around us in the world, and we ask for help. Ask the Lord for help right now in what you're going through. Be specific with him. Thank you that you hear our prayer. Father, we have no power against this great multitude, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Right now, we choose to worship. We choose to bow down. We praise you because your mercy endures forever. We choose to trust. You're trustworthy. We put our lives afresh in your hands. As we take communion tonight, would you comfort our hearts? In Jesus' name, amen.